Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. This is Yale World Fellow Dennis Misney, Executive Director of Instituto So de Paz, speaking with Colleen Shaddix of the Yale Office of Public Affairs. Misney works to reduce gun violence in Brazil. Compared with the global average, Brazilians are more than three times as likely to be murdered by a firearm. Dennis Misney is working to change that statistic through his organization, Instituto Sol de Paz. The nonprofit has played a key role in getting guns off the streets of Sao Paulo. This is Colleen Chaddix for the Yale Office of Public Affairs. I'm talking with Mr. Misney about his efforts to prevent violence in Brazil and increasingly around the world. He is currently a World Fellow, part of Yale's intensive program of academic and leadership training for emerging leaders around the globe. What drew you to this work? Well, what basically lots of people are, are drove, to, drove to that because of uh, personal tragedies or mm-hmm. because of family histories. Thank God it was not my case. I was just moved to that when I was a student at the law school in Sao Paulo, and we just got the first uh, numbers 10 years ago showing that the people who are dying most from gun violence in Brazil were kids from 15 to 24, so exactly our age. Mm -hmm. And they were in both sides of the gun, both killing and being killed. And that's, you know, we're seeing that our generation was losing their lives for lots of times for just basic futile motives. And uh, we were just seeing tragedy after tragedy after tragedy, and nobody was doing nothing in terms of looking at the problem and also looking at how the murders were being committed by so with guns. Uh, and so we launched a campaign in 97 at the university, the Soda Paz campaign, which mm-hmm. means I am for peace. And this grow bigger, bigger and bigger, transform into an NGO. And now we have been working uh, for these past years to reduce violence in Brazil. Can you give us some idea of just how pervasive the violence is? How, how much is the average person's life affected by crime or even fear of crime? It's, uh, if you look at just homicides, which is the worst kind of crime, we're talking about in just in 2003, we peaked at 39,000 homicides in a year. Sometimes it's difficult for mm-hmm. people to understand what this means. It means that every day, more than 100 people are killed by guns, wow. every day. And we're not in war. And we have to remind ourselves that because these are figures that, according to UNESCO, puts Brazil in a situation where compared to 27 conflicts all over the world during Mm. the last 10 years, Brazil ranks second amongst all these conflicts. So I'm including Israel, Palestine wars, the Balkan wars and issues like that. So in the last decade, we had like almost half a million uh, people dead. And that is something that uh, doesn't make sense. Uh, especially in a country that's living through democracy. It's a safe country. It's a safe continent. And uh, Latin America basically has not seen Mm -hmm. war for a long, long time. Uh, But we have this everyday street war that's basically Mm -hmm. affecting everyone's life. And more than everyone, as everything in Brazil, it's not equally divided. I mean, poor kids... Uh, living in favelas, in slums, in the periphery of big areas, of big cities, they are suffering uh, much more from armed violence uh, than are the rich uh, people living in their good neighborhoods, safe neighborhoods uh, in the center of the cities or in the countryside of the, of the country. So that's, that's what draws our attention because this is a, what we call a gun epidemic. It's not just 
just urban violence. It, it turns transforms to be an epidemic. Now, usually anti-crime measures really focus on giving law enforcement more power and more stringent sentences. And you've taken a very different approach. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's important that, that you look at police and you look at changing the laws to change the reality of violence. But m- uh, this cannot be the only focus that you have. Mm-hmm. And lots of cities and lots of countries have lost their war on crime or war on drugs exactly because they are only looking at the repression side of violence. And the big issue here is for every kid that you arrest that's involved with drug dealing or involved with violence in Brazil, there are five or ten just offering their resume to get the job. You know, mm-hmm. it's just a good economic opportunity. It has cultural value added to be in violence. If you don't have opportunity for young kids to be, you know, successful in education, to find a job, to go to university, they, ha- they are looking to other options, not only to gain money, but to gain respect from the community. And having access to a gun and making you feel powerless in front of them, even t- if they are mm-hmm. 12, 13, 14, they are small, they are young, and they can make you feel like completely uh, on their hands, uh, this changes the situation. And I think looking at the violence in a more broader concept, as you do in any other public policy area, it shows that you need to look at prevention at the same time as you're looking to repression. And more than that, it's just focusing both prevention and repression in a manner that is intelligent. So what we're talking here concretely, we're talking about developing policies in the most affected areas to the most affected groups. Policies are basically aiming at reducing conflict and the way conflict is, re- is resolved, so not accepting violent manners to reduce, uh, to solve conflict, mm-hmm. uh, generating more opportunity for youth at risk, uh, and for the commu- empowering the communities where they live, so those communities have a better sense of belonging and they can work together towards the solution. It's working with the police also, uh, not just saying the police is bad, we shouldn't right. have repression, but working with the police to have a stronger police, but the police that respects the law, and therefore it is respected by the community, that works closer with the community, with the people living in those areas, because the main tool for police, it's not guns, it's not their cars, it's not the law that they can enforce, is information. The Hmm. first, the number one need, and who can get you information? It's the majority of people who are honest, who are serious, who are law-abiding citizens, but live in rough neighborhoods and would never trust the police if they just arrive there just shooting, just treating everyone as criminals. So changing the relationship between communities and police, it's much more than just saying, you know, it's a human rights approach, you shouldn't treat people. Uh, it's, It's a very effective way of getting the police to be more effective themselves. And also you need, you know, sentences and you need prisons, but you need things that work, not things that just, you know, satisfy our uh, our desire for vengeance. That's with vengeance. It's not going. It's going to be with your brain and not with your heart uh, or your, you know, sometimes just your stomach mm-hmm. that you're going to change the situation in in violence. But uh, that's not how most people think. Now you've done a lot of work on gun control, which is at least here a very emotional issue. What what sort of hard data have you gathered from that to show what effect it's had on crime? That's a great question because when we started that 10 years ago and we talked about gun control and we tried to make sense to people that for some reason having everyone armed in in a society is much more dangerous than having no one armed. Mm -hmm. But since people don't try to believe that as easily because of the psychological power of the gun 
and the feeling and sometimes some people like in the US that's very common or even in Brazil they're just gun fetishists they love guns and they sleep with their guns and they take their you know to show to their kids and to their wife and the bigger the gun where you can do all the analogies you want but uh, the basic thing here is uh, if you reduce the number of guns in the streets you're going to reduce the number of crimes how uh, uh, and why is that first why is that because in very violent scenarios what are used to be just fights among people just discussions agreements this turned out to be uh, escalating. basically escalating yeah. into yeah. lethal problems and how are we dealing with that if you reduce the number of guns available you're starting to change the scenario and that opens the the, the environment to uh, to introduce introducing public policies to reduce crime. So what happened when we, first this was just an ideology or an idea, it transformed after we approved the law in 2003 to make much more tougher law, gun law in Brazil, we managed to approve that in Congress. After 2003, it was for the first time that we saw a reduction in homicides in Brazil. So from 1990 to 2003, 13 years of increase in gun homicides in Brazil. 2003 we peaked at mm -hmm. almost 40,000, now, a, re a study released by the Ministry of Health just showed that 24,000 lives were saved after the gun law. We're yeah. now in the fourth year of decrease in homicides in Brazil just after the gun law was approved. And how much more powerful can it be in terms of statistics or hard data? How much harder can it be that the number of lives saved, you know, 24,000 people that didn't die because you had the law. So I would challenge any Congress in the world to show what other law legislation mm -hmm. they passed that could aim at reducing that number of, of deaths. Now, it was interesting. What I read indicated that there was a lot of public support for this legislation in Brazil, but you had some visitors from the United States, right? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, we, we there was a whole process of building support. Uh, we started at half and half, as most societies, 50-50, supporting and against gun control and even banning guns mm -hmm. uh, and we got uh, till uh, we got to 82 percent of the population supporting a complete ban on guns and that's how we managed to pass the legislation and fight the gun lobby in congress uh, but we had a national referendum in 2005 to discuss specifically ending completely the sales mm -hmm. of guns which is a very very radical measure and it was very interesting to see in the public campaigns we had two weeks campaigning before the referendum and the strategy that was developed by the gun industry and their allies in Congress were basically using NRA discourse, the rights discourse, even the constitutional right to bear arms, which is not in the Brazilian not constitution. Brazilian constitutional the right. Supreme Court said in Brazil by unanimity, we don't have a constitutional right to have a gun. Wow. Uh, but, you know, they were saying that on TV and dealing with people's emotion. And that's the key with violence. People are very emotional about mm -hmm. it. And it's very difficult to bring rationality into the picture. And in two weeks, you can just generate chaos by saying, you know, do you really think uh, criminals are going to give in their guns? Do you really think the police can arrive at your home? And even if I'm saying that and people are listening, they're probably thinking, wow, it's true. How can I defend myself mm -hmm. if the police doesn't come? But the big issue here is, in the end of the day, having a gun at home just puts you so much more at risk than right. not it's having one. According to the FBI, it's just 181 yeah. times. In the U.S., 181 times a gun is used to kill someone. For one time, it is used in self-defense. So that's what we're looking at. Accidents, 
kids being shot by guns in their home, in their homes, neighbors being shot by neighbors, people just, you know, uh, people are not used and they are not supposed to be in charge of public safety. That's a role of the state. We need uh, communities to, to collaborate with the state, but not like uh, trying to create their own militias or their own private guarding system where nobody's trained, nobody's controlled. And that's why we see in the U.S. with such loose laws that you have 19 more times uh, homicides in the U.S. than in any other developed country. So when you compare equals, when you look at equals, people with the same social realities, the U.S. is just, you know, uh, just amazingly more violent than other countries. So now that you know, now that you've sort of seen the NRA's tactics, are you prepped to try again with a national referendum? Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm not sure. If, if we look at the referendum, if we looked afterwards, because it was just a very smart marketing campaign, but it really didn't change what people thought. Mm. What we saw after the referendum, although we lost the referendum by 65% to 35%, uh, we saw a decrease in gun sales. So we would expect to see an increase, but according to the industry themselves, they lost 92% of their sales. 92% is huge. Right. That's because the law made it more tough to get a gun, mm -hmm. more safe to get a gun. You have to now do a psychological test. You have to be over 25. You have, and none of those things were lost during the referendum. The referendum was just another measure trying to go a little bit th further on the debate. So maybe instead of save, saving 24,000 lives in those first four years, we could be talking about 30,000 lives or a little bit more. And so what we're seeing here is the people's behavior still didn't change. Brazilians don't believe that guns are going to solve the problem, but they sent a message. And I think an important message even to us, which is we cannot focus all the strategy on gun control. We have to have better policing. We have to have better prevention measures. And I think we have been working for that for in this direction for a long time, but it needs the government to really take this as a serious priority, invest serious money on that and show people that their communities can be safer. And I think the communities we saw where homicides were going down mm -hmm. very, very uh, fast because of some of the programs the government and we and other NGOs did, uh, on those communities, we won the referendum. And that, that makes lots of sense. I mean, when people feel that things are changing, things are getting better, they are much more willing to give in their guns or give in their potential need for a gun because they see that the situation is improving. So I think we have to work on those two signs here. One is marketing just writes this course. That won't work. It works for a campaign, but not to convince mm -hmm. people to buy guns. Uh, but the second part is we need a broader and much more um, comprehensive public agenda in the public top priorities uh, in terms of reducing crime, not looking at crime at a warrant crime, but on the contrary, looking at how can you attack, you know, attack the root causes of mm -hmm. crime in an intelligent manner, not in an idealist manner, and you can start seeing results. And the good thing is we are seeing those results. So I hope this helps uh, to go the debate, to move the debate forward and encourage politicians to say, I can you know, trust those policies, those right. preventive policies, because they are working. So that can mean more votes. And normally they just think, you know, I just go with the tough discourse because that's more popular. Mm -hmm. And we have to change this and we have to be more serious in dealing with such a serious issue. Now you're going beyond your own borders now, trying to work on small arms control on a regional and even an international level. What are the challenges of doing that? 
It's, it's very interesting, this point, because when you look at the globalized world, you basically see that controlling the guns inside your borders, it's very important, and having tougher laws in your, in your country is very important, especially because Brazil is the second largest producer of guns in the region, mm -hmm. the fifth largest in the world. Uh, but when you look at our neighbors, you see, for example, Paraguay, it's a country where lots of things could be smuggled through the borders because of their laws. Or uh, In Argentina, you had problems. In Uruguay, you had problems. Bolivia, Colombia is facing conflict. So basically, the first role here was just to create a network of organizations that were facing similar uh, difficulties in their countries and try to harmonize legislation and try mm -hmm. to harmonize the, the or try to multiply the effects of campaigning and sensitizing people and exchanging good practices from one another. And this has been working through the last three years in a coalition called CLAVE, the coalition, Latin American coalition to prevent armed violence. And it's interesting to see that Uruguay, uh, Paraguay, Bolivia, Argentina, they are all changing their legislations. Argentina is in the middle now of a buyback campaign, very much modeled in the Brazilian campaign. Mm -hmm. uh, the Paraguayan law was very much modeled in the Brazilian law. And also we're learning from their experiences and changing policies in our level. So I, I think that's crucial. And our main goal now, in terms of our global agenda, uh, is we are working with different organizations, Amnesty International, Oxfam, uh, and other organizations in more than 100 countries to fight for an arms trade treaty. And the arms trade treaty is basically an international treaty that could not, we're not talking about civilian possession, we're not talking about reducing, we're talking only about making sense of the global trade of guns. There are just not a single piece of legislation controlling the international flow of arms. Really? So and I could sell a gun to somebody in Bolivia? Exactly. Or you can sell a gun to someone in Darfur. Mm -hmm. Or you can sell a gun to someone, you know, in midst of conflict mm -hmm. in, or an insurgent group in Iraq that would make more difficult for the U.S. to leave the country or Afghanistan. Or mm -hmm. And we're just seeing those. Mm -hmm. I mean, a recent case in Newsweek uh, showed this was weapons, that's a very good example of how globalized the market is. So the American government bought 20,000 Glock pistols. Glock pistols are produced in Austria. So the American government bought 20,000 pistols in Austria, sent to Iraq for the police forces, to arm the police forces in Iraq. So mm -hmm. perfect legitimate mm -hmm. thing, right? You're helping the police. But for some reason, these guns were smuggled to Turkey through the border between Iraq and Turkey. And a Turk guy in a city that had nothing to do, just in a street crime, got murdered by one of those pistols. Mm -hmm. So that shows that, you know, there's an interconnection all over. And at some points, if you, if you cannot control what you're talking about, if you don't have straight rules, for example, how is the police in Iraq controlling their arsenals? Or how is the, how is the Paraguayan government controlling? Or how is lots of countries in Africa controlling their arsenals? What happens with guns after conflicts end? Mm. Who, takes, you know, who takes those guns away after you have you know, civil wars in Africa, everybody with the AK-47s, and suddenly you see that those guns are the same being used in another conflict in a neighboring country. So unless we have a global set of rules, just basic rules to say you have to evaluate the conditions before exporting weapons, the government that's rece receiving weapons have to guarantee that those weapons are going to stay, you have a common marking and tracing system, think basic things like that. That's what we, we brought to the UN, we started campaigning mm -hmm. for that in 2003. Last year, the General Assembly of the UN 
uh, approved by 153 votes against one, only the United States voted against it. Uh, but 153 countries thought it is sensible to start debating that. And this year we got also the support of, again, uh, more than 100 countries to say, we know, that's the kind of treaty you want. So we're moving forward. It's not very fast, the mm -hmm. UN, as people know. But we hope by 2010 we're going to have a, a, an arms trade treaty with tough human rights uh, rules, with tough humanitarian laws rules, with basically... Uh, to enforce the UN embargoes and things like that. So use international law and civil society uh, awareness uh, raising to uh, reduce the availability of guns all but over. But you would have to get the United States buy-in because of their Security Council position, isn't that right? Yeah, it, it's, it's a different situation because it basically a treaty is negotiated at the, ge at the General Assembly, mm -hmm. uh, and the General Assembly is the only body at the UN you, where you actually have a vote. Most of and security costs you have a vote, but you have veto power. Right. So then would necessarily have to have the support of the five big five countries. But at the General Assembly, it's a majority vote. And oh. if it's a strong majority, like 153 against one, uh, that's that's a very good sign. But and then each country can decide if they're going to sign. But mm -hmm. our challenge is not to put the U.S. aside; it's to bring the U.S. on board. It's very mm -hmm. important. And the U.S. has serious export controls regulation, although internally it's very loose because of the lobby of the NRA. If you if you look at, uh, at the U.S. exports, they're pretty. Uh, they have tight rules, so it won't be a problem to them to be abiding to, to those international okay. standards. But it's a question not only of the U.S., it's to bring China on board, it's to bring India and Pakistan, it's to bring Iran, Israel. There are lots of countries, Venezuela, they have problems with discussing, you know, control on their uh, access to guns. And we're trying just to, you know, make sense to countries that their self-defense is not at risk. Civilian possession, it's not in debate. We're basically trying to just make sense that, you know, we, we understand countries need arms, but we also understand that they need stability. And just seeing terrorist groups, organized crime groups, um, insurgents inside countries having so easy access to guns that you can buy an AK-47 in the Balkans for $40. Wow. That's not safe for anyone. And that's not in the interest of anyone, especially the most vulnerable populations of the world. So they are, I think, the end beneficiaries of a treaty like that. And I hope we can gather support for that. How do you see your work as a world fellow folding in with this whole kind of international coalition building that you're doing now? I think it's uh, it's a fascinating experience, not only because the program helps us understand much better the situation all over the world, but it also helps to create a network where you can meet actually people from either government or key places in civil society or in research organizations that have data, have information, can help you shape your campaign in their countries, can help you, you know, uh, understand some of the resistance that can appear and also can help you, you know, just improve. So the exchange uh, of information among the world mm -hmm. fellows and especially uh, among the world fellows and the Yale community at large helps us to understand uh, how we can improve our work and not only the arms trade treaty or the fight for a just safer world in terms of uh, arms circulation, but also, I mean, to know how to evaluate your programs because of the classes we can take here, right. uh, get access to speakers that come from all over the world to come here and you can have a chance to meet them one-on-one -on -one or in a small group and really have a serious debate. And I think this is just a, um, uh, it's, it's basically, there is a price to that, it's priceless. It's basically having the opportunity of take time, think, 
better organize your work, and at the same time, get all the skills and context that you need to take your work to the next level. And I'm really confident that uh, this group of people that are here and the previous fellows and the fellows that will come mm -hmm. uh, are understanding the role of our responsibilities and not looking at that as a burden in our shoulders, but really as an opportunity uh, to move forward to a, a much safer, much peaceful world where things start making sense. And that's what I hope our minor contribution could be. Thank you. We've been talking with Dennis Misney, the executive director of Instituto Sol de Paz, about his efforts to ban gun violence in his native Brazil and elsewhere. For more information about the World Fellows at Yale, visit yale.edu slash worldfellows. Dennis Misney is an anti-violence advocate in Brazil. He was interviewed by Colleen Shaddox of the Yale Office of Public Affairs. For more information about the Yale World Fellows Program, please visit www.yale.edu slash worldfellows.